You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. After the plague, Yahweh said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, from twenty years old and upward, by their fathers' houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people, from twenty years old and upward, as Yahweh commanded Moses. The people of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, the sons of Reuben, of Hanok, the clan of the Hanokites, of Palu, the clan of the Paluites, of Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites, of Carmi, the clan of the Carmites. These are the clans of the Reubenites, and those listed were 43,730. And the sons of Palu, Eliab, the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram, chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah, when they contended against Yahweh, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah, when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. The sons of Simeon, according to their clans, of Nemuel, the clan of the Nemuelites, of Jamin, the clan of the Jamanites, of Jachin, the clan of the Jachinites, of Zerah, the clan of the Zerahites, of Shaul, the clan of the Shaulites. These are the clans of the Simeonites, 22,200. The sons of Gad, according to their clans, of Zephon, the clan of the Zephonites, of Haggai, the clan of the Haggites, of Shuni, the clan of the Shunites, of Ozni, the clan of the Oznites, of Eri, the clan of the Erites, of Arod, the clan of the Erodites, of Erali, the clan of the Erolites. These are the clans of the sons of Gad as they were listed, 40,500. The sons of Judah were Er and Onan, and Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Judah, according to their clans, were of Shelah, the clan of the Shelanites, of Perez, the clan of the Perizzites, of Zerah, the clan of the Zerahites. And the sons of Perez were of Hezron, the clan of the Hezronites, of Hamul, the clan of the Hamulites. These are the clans of Judah, as they were listed, 76,500. The sons of Issachar, according to their clans, of Tola, the clan of the Tolaites, of Puva, the clan of the Punites, of Joshub, the clan of the Joshubites, of Shimron, the clan of the Shimronites. These are the clans of Issachar, as they were listed, 64,300. The sons of Zebulun, according to their clans, of Sered, the clan of the Seredites, of Elon, the clan of the Elonites, of Jalil, the clan of the Jalilites. These are the clans of the Zebulonites, as they were listed, 60,500. The sons of Joseph, according to their clans, Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Manasseh, of Machir, the clan of the Machirites, and Machir was the father of Gilead, of Gilead, 
the clan of the Gileadites. These are the sons of Gilead. Of Eizer, the clan of the Eizerites. Of Helek, the clan of the Helekites. And of Azrael, the clan of the Azraelites. And of Shechem, the clan of the Shechemites. And of Shemida, the clan of the Shemidites. And of Hefer, the clan of the Heferites. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters, and the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. These are the clans of Manasseh, and those listed were 52,700. These are the sons of Ephraim, according to their clans, of Shuthela, the clan of the Shuthelahites, of Baker, the clan of the Bekarites, of Tehan, the clan of the Tehanites, and these are the sons of Shuthala, of Aaron, the clan of the Aaronites. These are the clans of the sons of Ephraim, as they were listed, 32,500. These are the sons of Joseph, according to their clans. The sons of Benjamin, according to their clans. Of Bela, the clan of the Belaites. Of Ashbel, the clan of the Ashbelites. Of Ahiram, the clan of the Ahiramites. Of Shephupham, the clan of the Shufamites, of Hufam, the clan of the Hufamites, and the sons of Bela were Ard and Naaman, of Ard, the clan of the Ardites, of Naaman, the clan of the Naamates. These are the sons of Benjamin, according to their clans, and those listed were 45,600. These are the sons of Dan, according to their clans, of Shuham, the clan of the Shuhamites, these are the clans of Dan according to their clans. All the clans of the Shuhamites, as they were listed, were 64,400. The sons of Asher, according to their clans, of Imna, the clan of the Imnites, of Ishvi, the clan of the Ishvites, of Bariah, the clan of the Bariahites, of the sons of Bariah, of Heber, the clan of the Heberites, of Malkiel, the clan of the Malkielites, and the name of the daughter of Asher, was Sarah. These are the clans of the sons of Asher, as they were listed, 53,400. The sons of Naphtali, according to their clans, of Jazil, the clan of the Jazilites, of Guni, the clan of the Gunites, of Jazer, the clan of the Jazerites, of Shilam, the clan of the Shilamites. These are the clans of Naphtali, according to their clans, and those listed were 45,400. This was the list of the people of Israel, 601,730. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. This was the list of the Levites according to their clans. Of Gershon, the clan of the Gershonites. Of Kohath, the clan of the Kohathites. Of Merari, the clan of the Merarites. These are the clans of Levi, the clan of the Libnites the clan of the Hebronites, the clan of the Malhites, the clan of the Mushites, the clan of the Korahites. And Kohath was the father of Amram, 
The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And she bore to Amram Aaron and Moses and Miriam, their sister. And to Aaron were born Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before Yahweh. And those listed were 23,000, every male from a month old and upward. For they were not listed among the people of Israel, because there was no inheritance given to them among the people of Israel. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest, who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For Yahweh had said of them, They shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 640 of this podcast. That was a reading of Numbers chapter 26. Today is Friday, June 16th. The year is Anno Domini 2023, also known as Common Era in some circles, but I think that's dumb. And so I'm going to stick with AD. Thank you very much. That little ditty I played for you, by the way, is In the Hall of the Mountain King. That rendition by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Atticus is an awesome name, by the way. That's from the soundtrack to the movie 
The Social Network, if you recognize it. And even if you don't, it's from The Social Network. So uh, there you have it. But, you know, it's a funny thing. In the Hall of the Mountain King seemed like a fitting song to play to segue from the reading of scripture in this episode to our larger discussion, because who owns this people? Who actually rules over this people, Israel, in Numbers 26? Who is their king? God. God is their king. Yahweh is their king. They are, in a sense, in the hall of the mountain king, if you will. And for that matter, too, all of this talk of various tribes, various clans, various fathers' houses, the numbering of men, men who are able to go off and fight in war, in battle, the numbering of the men of these various houses, these various tribes, these various clans. It is difficult to read. (laughs) If you've ever tried to read it out loud, maybe you haven't, but just try it sometime and try to keep pace as you're reading these very unfamiliar names or what to me anyway, are very unfamiliar names in many cases. And they're hard to say, man, it is like a, uh, what, exercise that you might go through to try and get your tongue uh, ready to be able to speak well, uh, which is actually, you know, not a bad way to start a podcast episode. I'm just saying, if I weren't reading this aloud at the beginning of the podcast episode, which I intend to keep on doing, by the way, as long as the Lord permits me to, we'll just keep on going all the way through the Bible until the Lord uh, returns or calls me home or until uh, Spotify gives me the boot or uh, somebody with the kill switch on the internet says, okay, no more internet for anybody. Until that happens, I'm going to keep on reading these passages at the beginning of our podcast episodes and talking about them, because I think it's important for us to try and integrate these chapters that are so often overlooked and neglected and ignored. We don't read them. We don't study them. We don't teach them. We don't talk about them. We don't apply them. We don't think about them, but we should, we should. I think it's important for us to, and that all scripture being breathed out by God and profitable, God has a purpose for this being in here. God has a purpose for us remembering these things, knowing these things. We learn something of the character of God. We also learn something about ourselves. We learn something anthropological. And in this case, in this case, maybe I'm not uh, correct in the direction I want to take this as far as what the big idea is, but at least what stands out to me is these Israelites have had a lot of kids. If they have this many hundreds of thousands of fighting age men to be able to count and to number, they've been very fruitful and they have multiplied exceedingly. And what's also interesting is that being numbered on the front end of their time in the wilderness, they're wandering in the wilderness as punishment, as penalty for grumbling and disobedience. They are now being numbered at the conclusion of the wandering in the wilderness, and there's still quite a lot of them. So even in the wilderness, and and this is my point, right? This is what I'm trying to get at is there's a lot of them. They've been fruitful and multiplied in the wilderness. They haven't just stopped 
having babies, having families, getting married, having children. They haven't stopped that because they're in the wilderness, because they're a traveling people. That's important. I don't know how many of us have ever really stopped to think about it, but I've never heard anybody talk about it. So my guess would be very few of us have ever really stopped to think about how 400 years in bondage in Egypt, they didn't stop having kids just because they were being oppressed. They didn't stop getting married and having families just because they were in hard bondage in Egypt. When they are brought out of Egypt, they don't stop having kids as they're wandering in the wilderness. They keep on getting married and having households and having families and having kids. And then when they are brought into Canaan and God says he's not going to give the land into their hands quickly, he's going to give it to them gradually over time so that the beasts, the wild beasts, don't multiply and cause trouble for them. But they keep on having kids. That's just it. God is expecting them to keep on having kids as they are possessing the land. And this is perhaps lost on many of us who have come to believe certain things de facto in this day and age. In the year 2023, in the United States of America, many of us have grown accustomed to controlling how many kids we have and when we have them and deciding to not have kids during an economic downturn or during political unrest. I've heard a lot of people about my age say, you know what, I just don't know if I feel right about having kids with there being so much that's wrong in the world, so much that's disruptive and chaotic. I don't know if that's right to bring children into that. I would feel bad for those kids being subjected to all of the mess and the chaos. And I just think, well, how could it be worse than 400 years of bondage in Egypt? How could it be worse than 40 years wandering in the desert? How could it be worse than coming into the land of Canaan and possessing it and fighting and war to take these cities and these towns and these villages from the inhabitants God is driving out? How could it be harder to live in the United States of America in the year 2023 than it was for the Israelites thousands of years ago being led by Moses or being led by Joshua after him? How could it be harder for us? I don't think it's that it's gotten harder. And I don't think it's that the world has gotten worse. I think it's that we have a steadier stream of information and our expectations have changed and our capacity to decide, I just don't want to have kids. That has changed. Or our capacity to say, I want to have this many kids and I want my children to be this far spaced apart and I want to have this many boys and this many girls at this time in my life once I've accomplished these things, these mile markers are behind me in my getting an education or establishing my career or establishing my business or what have you. Traveling the world, fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. We have gotten very soft and very self-indulgent compared with what God's people in past times would have thought like, what they would have expected. There's just no two ways about it. We've gotten very soft. We have become very entitled in our thinking and very self-absorbed and very short-sighted. 
How would it have been if every time there was adversity, every time there were challenges or setbacks or upsets or threats or dangers, these Israelites had just not had any kids? Would they have, by the time of the census in Numbers 26, would they have had 601,730 men able to fight and go to war like they do here? in verse 51. I dare say no. I, I dare say they would not have. Now, one thing you might say is, yeah, but we have the capacity, right? We have tools at our disposal that they didn't have to be able to plan these things. And we should avail ourselves, right? We should avail ourselves of those tools if we would be wise, because with great power comes great responsibility. We have the great power of being able to control when we have kids, how many kids we have, maybe even increasingly what kinds of kids they are, whether they're boys or girls. And there's a whole wild world of ethical dilemmas and problems, but we may be able to select certain traits genetically and say, Oh, I want my son or my daughter to have a certain color of eyes or a certain color of hair or a certain color of skin. I want them to not have a predilection for certain diseases that run in my family. Or I want them to have certain genes that have been very advantageous. Increasingly, we are believing that we can play God. There's just no two ways about it. We're believing that we can play God. And that has just never ended well for anybody who gets that into their heads, except for God himself, but he's not playing. He is. We should not play God. We should be imitators of God in the ways God has created us to be his image bearers. We should be imitating him. We should be holy for he is holy, but we should recognize our finitude and we should embrace it instead of grumbling against it. I'm not saying don't develop technologies, but certain kinds of technologies that are developed along certain lines do come from, I would say, the same or a very similar place to the building of the Tower of Babel. The building of the Tower of Babel was hubris, plain and simple. It was arrogance. It was defiance. It was an act of the will. It was a gesture of self-actualization, of a certain godlike aspiration, and God thwarted it. He confused the languages. He confused the languages in part to get them to stop doing the hubristic thing with the building of the tower, but also because they had all clumped up in a city. They had all coalesced into this city. When God clearly had said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, fill the earth, meaning spread out, spread out across the earth, not get all clumped up in one city, tightly packed, and then start building a monument to your own folly. No, no, obey, or I'll make you obey, <laughs> essentially, is what God does there in the story of the confusion of the languages at Babel. You know, what's curious about this here with the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years is God will get obedience. What's curious here is even if it requires 
40 years of wandering in the desert in a certain futility of minds and hearts. God would rather work with the next generation than put up with the constant rebellion, the constant murmuring and grumbling and maligning the character of God. He is not going to bless this people if they are not obeying. But what has he gotten for himself in causing the people of Israel to wander in the desert for 40 years? He has gotten for himself an obedient generation or a generation that will be obedient. And there are two representative samples from the previous generation who will stay with this new and younger generation, this next generation, Joshua and Caleb. At the very last of this chapter, it says, not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Not one was left except these two. And these two are important and significant because they brought a good report back after spying out the land. There were 12 spies sent. Only these two delivered a good report. And how do we know it was a good report? Because the report of the other 10 was, we are as grasshoppers in the eyes of the inhabitants of the land. Their cities are strong. Their walls are high and thick. Their people are big and they are giants. And we are not giants. And yes, the land is filled with good things, but it's also filled with giants. No, we can't take it. It's too strong for us. It was only Joshua and Caleb who said, we can take this exceedingly good land. In fact, let's go now. Why wait? Let's go do it now. If that is what God has called us to. And you've got to think, 40 years of watching the whole rest of their generation fall in the desert, dead. Their dead bodies falling in the desert. 40 years of that, Joshua and Caleb are now on the precipice. They are now on the very edge of seeing this promised land that they trusted God would lead them into and their descendants after them into. And what a sweet, sweet moment it must be. 40 years of anticipation and expectation and endurance and trusting the Lord and probably having some difficulty with those of their generation that had talked about Hey, maybe we should just stone. We, we should just stone Joshua and Caleb for delivering this report we don't want to hear. It's a good report, but we don't want to hear it. It's very inconvenient. It makes us feel bad. It's very convicting. 40 years of that is about to pay off as their faith is rewarded. It's a remarkable, remarkable passage. But let's get into some current events items and let's tie in some of what we're seeing in the way of themes here in Numbers 26. Let's tie these in to our understanding of some of these current events items. First up, let's talk about a post over at Not the Bee from just yesterday by Harris Rigby, citing a new international study that included 264,000 participants, showing that the risk of depression among women is increased by up to 130% if they take hormonal birth control pills. This is important. What was I just talking about with regards to the family planning mindset that we have versus what the Israelites clearly had? Here it is. Here it is. 
According to the study, women who began to use contraceptive pills as teenagers had a 130% higher incidence of symptoms of depression, while the corresponding increase among adult users was 92%. That is to say, if you as a woman take hormonal birth control, your risk of depression doubles. And this shouldn't actually be all that surprising because what is the premise? The premise is you take this pill and this pill is going to trick your body into thinking you're already pregnant. By doing what? By messing with your hormones. Well, what else are your hormones doing besides helping you as a woman to ovulate or become pregnant or have successful implantation of a fertilized egg? What else are your hormones doing? Regulating your mood, regulating your emotions and your attentions and your sleep cycles and your metabolism and all kinds of things. There are all sorts of things that are affected by your hormones, including, yes, the ability to get pregnant. But here's another quote. The powerful influence of contraceptive pills on teenagers can be ascribed to the hormonal changes caused by puberty, as women in that age group have already experienced substantial hormonal changes, they can be more receptive not only to hormonal changes, but also to other life experiences. Lead researcher Therese Johansson of the Department of Immunology, Genetics, and Pathology at Uppsala University says, quote, the findings of the study point to a need for healthcare professionals to be more aware of possible links between different systems in the body, such as depression and the use of contraceptive pills. The researchers conclude that it is important for care providers to inform women who are considering using contraceptive pills of the potential risk of depression as a side effect of the medicine. Yeah, that's a good idea. You should definitely advise women that they could become depressed. Also, here's a thought. Here's an idea. How about just don't do that. Don't take the pills for lots of reasons, including this one. Sure. Yes. Uh-huh. But also teenagers who aren't married, maybe don't take birth control pills because mm, you're not having sex, right? You're not having sex because you're not married. Protect your virginity and save that for your husband when you get married someday and plan to get married. The whole premise of birth control pills except in some very, very rare cases where they're trying it out, they're experimenting to try and regulate something else that's going on by nudging this, bumping this. The majority reason why teenagers and young women are taking birth control pills is because they're having sex, but they don't want to get pregnant. And that's the whole idea. Another way to not get pregnant is to not have sex, right? That's an option. It's an option for you. On the other hand... If you are taking birth control pills and you're having lots of sex, any sex at all, really, for that matter, with people you don't intend to get married to, but then you're developing a strong emotional and psychological and spiritual connection with right alongside the physical connection, maybe part of the reason why there's a much higher incidence of depression is because that is also hurting you. Maybe right? Maybe. Maybe having sex with people you're not committed to and who aren't committed to you leads to a broken heart and sadness and 
a lack of a sense of purpose and belonging, which God has wired you as a teenage girl or a young woman to associate with potentially getting married and having kids. You know, there's also, of course, the possibility that some of the people, some of the women, it's all women, I shouldn't say people, the women who are on birth control pills because men can't get pregnant, it's possible that some of the women on birth control pills are married, but they don't want to get pregnant right away. They want to spend some time getting to know each other. Let me just say, I can understand that that sounds good in your head, but no, don't do that. Don't don't do that. Spend time getting to know one another for real. Get to know one another when the nausea and the morning sickness hits. Get to know one another when there's a crying baby in the middle of the night and he has to work tomorrow morning and one of you needs to get up and change the baby, nurse the baby, bottle feed the baby. If the nursing thing's not what you're doing for some reason, one of you has to attend to the baby. Get to know each other in that context because that's real life. That's real life. Avoiding that is more trouble than it saves you from. I would argue. I would contend. And in the long run, you know yourself better, more truly, and you know the other person. You know your husband, ladies. You know your wife, men, better if you have really gotten to know them in that context, not in the context of everything is always perfect and great, and then we just don't do anything risky that could possibly make us uncomfortable or upset. We just don't do anything that would be difficult or challenging, and we call that love. It might not be love. It might be cowardice. Oh, by the way, can I just point out another consequence of birth control is because birth control messes with the hormones in a woman's body, which would cause her body to think it's already pregnant when it's not pregnant, because birth control is messing with those hormones, what it actually does as well is it causes women who are on birth control to have more of an attraction towards men who are less masculine. True story. This is a true story. Studies have been conducted that find this to be the case. Women who are pregnant or who are on birth control tend to find men who are less traditionally masculine less ruggedly handsome, perhaps we could say, who have lower levels of testosterone, generally speaking, women who are pregnant or on birth control tend to find those men more attractive. And why is that? Because their body is telling them, their hormones are telling them that they're very vulnerable and they need to be not treated roughly. And so there's a certain aversion, possibly, if I could speculate, there's a certain aversion. And then also too, it's like, well, they don't need to get any more pregnant than they are. If their body's telling them they're pregnant, they don't need to get any more pregnant. That's the whole reason for the birth controls. But what does that do, right? What does that do if women on birth control then go out and date or look around at men who might be a potential partner to marry, to spend the rest of their lives with, and then they stop with the birth control in a few years after getting to know each other, but now they realize they're married to this less masculine man. They're married to somebody who is not as high in testosterone. What happens 
year over year, decade over decade, after even just a few generations. What we're doing is we are selectively breeding ourselves into androgyny. And oh, by the way, this is before we even talk about testosterone levels in women who work full-time, who pursue a career right alongside men. Typically, testosterone levels are higher in women who have a full-time job outside of the home. Typically, testosterone levels are lower in women who stay home, have babies, keep the house. And you could ask, well, which is the cart and which is the horse? I would say it's probably a little bit of cause and even more effect. It might be initially influenced by levels of testosterone. Maybe women with more testosterone tend to go out and get a job in the broader world, wider world, but then also how much of that is conditioned? How much of that is nature versus nurture? I would say a lot of it in our day is highly susceptible to nurture. And we see that in the stats for young people identifying as homosexual, bisexual, transgendered, queer, non-binary. A lot of this is social conditioning and operant conditioning and incentive structures. And what we are all saying we're going to affirm is what young people say, oh, that's my aspiration. That's what I want. I want affirmation. My aspiration is to get affirmation. If I can get that by being gender fluid or non-binary or queer or whatever, well, then that's what I'll do. And so they do. But you need to understand all of those same mechanics, all of those same incentive structures can also work towards encouraging young ladies to develop higher testosterone levels from little on up. And all of those same mechanisms can discourage testosterone production in boys from little on up. We can affect these things through training and upbringing, and we should want our daughters to be very feminine. We should want our sons to be very masculine. We shouldn't want there to be an ambiguity there or an androgyny there. We shouldn't. We shouldn't want that. But unfortunately, actually, if you want to know my thoughts on this, I'm I'm going to say actually because it's very clear to me this might throw some people for a loop, but I, I can't deny the parallel between women being on birth control for the past 50 years or so, and on the other hand, young people now being encouraged to take puberty blockers, to take hormone therapy treatments and drugs so that they can transition to the other gender. I don't see a whole lot of difference. For that matter, too, I think that men getting vasectomies and women getting hysterectomies is actually very much uh, upstream and a contributing factor in young people getting gender reassignment surgery. I think it's a slippery slope. I think it's a hop, skip, and a jump from I'm going to make it to where I can't have kids anymore because that will help me to self-actualize to the next thing being, I'm just going to totally change my sexual identity, my gender identity to the opposite thing because that's my idea of self-actualization. What's the common denominator? It's all about me. It's all about the self, what I want. Did you stop to think about what God wants? 
in any of that, in any of it, at all? Or does God just rubber stamp whatever you want? Something tells me that a common refrain from even those who have been raised in the church and they've grown up in a very Christianese environment, the response from many of those types would be, well, I just think that God would want me to be happy. Or I just really feel like God is calling me to such and such. It's like, you know, God might be calling you to that and also embracing marriage and having a family and having kids all at the same time. Let's walk and chew gum simultaneously here. <laughs> Let's not suppose getting married and having kids is something you do when that's all you have to do. No, 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 no. That's, that's not reasonable. That's not appropriate. In fact, I would say a lot of the strength in a marriage and in having children can come from adversity being faced together. And also a lot of the strength that you bring to these other situations that you're involved in can come from being fresh off of a bad night's sleep with the crying baby and you and your loved one being not exactly thrilled with each other at two in the morning for a little bit as you disputed who is going to change the diaper or stand and try and rock this baby back to sleep and also simultaneously not be sleeping themselves. There's a lot you can bring to other situations at work, in the community, at your church, in your ministry, in your social clubs. There's a lot you can bring to those having learned lessons, important lessons in the midst of adversity and trial. And a lot of us don't believe that. A lot of us don't know that. And so we have this anemic view of marriage and parenting and having kids. We have a very anemic view as though only some people are so lucky to find the right one. Only some people are so fortunate as to have a whole bunch of kids. But what do I hear? I hear it so often. Ah, oh, we can't afford to have kids. It's like, you know, if you're waiting, if you're waiting until you can afford to have kids, you're just not ever going to have kids. Hate to tell you that. You will never be able to afford having kids. <laughs> it will always be the case that if you have kids, you're going to be thinking, oh, I'd love to get this for them. Oh, I'd love to get that for them. Oh, I wish we had this. Oh, I wish they had that. If you love your kids, you're going to want to give them the world. And you'll never be able to because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and its inhabitants, all that belongs to God, you get a portion. The portion that you get, you should be content with and you should strive and work hard to be a good steward of. And yes, you know what? Sometimes maybe there are good reasons to hold off on having kids or getting married. Sure, but that should be a short span of time, not years and years and years and years and years. What is it that Paul says in the New Testament? He says, because there is so much sexual immorality in the world, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband, and the two should render to one another their conjugal duties. They should not deprive one another except for a short time by mutual consent to devote themselves to prayer. Now, how short is a short time? How short is a short time? And what are we asking many young people these days or pressuring many young people in various ways through various means, some not so subtle, but most of them very, very subtle. We're pressuring young people to get married 
on average, 29 or 30 years old. But a lot of these young people, by the time they hit that 29, 30 years old mark, and they settled down after having accomplished what they've accomplished, what have they demonstrated? Their education, their career, their selves come first. Their material wealth, their social standing, that comes first. A wife or a husband, icing on the cake. When it's convenient. Having kids? Yeah. When it's convenient. And I'm not saying if somebody waits until they're 29, 30 years old, they've really missed the boat always in all cases. I'm not saying that. There are special cases, but they should be the exception rather than the rule. And nowadays, it's the rule rather than the exception that young people are getting married at 29, 30 years old if they're getting married. A lot of young people, because of the very garbage notions about the self and about marriage and about parenting and about family and about society and about God, ultimately, which are so common, you have a lot of young people who are just like, you know what? I'm not ever going to get married. I'm not ever going to get married. Can't get divorced if I don't get married. Yep. 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 And I'm not going to ever have kids because climate change, global warming, recession, potential for World War III. I'm just not ever going to have kids. No wonder Young women on birth control have a double incidence of depression. It might not all be due to the birth control pills, but a lot of it could be physical, chemical. That's what's being affected. Hormones help to regulate your mood generally. You go messing with the natural cycle that is supposed to be there just so you don't have to have kids. It's a double whammy. You're messing with something that has broader implications for your overall well-being, happiness, and health than you probably realized so that you can have this one thing. Because like Carl Truman says, the self was psychologized, psychology was sexualized, sex was politicized. And now people think that the truest, purest form of self-actualization is being rebellious with their sex lives. What if the truest self-actualization in most cases We're actually getting married as young as practical, as young as possible, having a big family, building a home. What if that were actually a truer and better self-actualization? I think it is. I, I think it is. I think it's supposed to be. I think there's a whole lot of things that are on the macro that are decided and dictated by people with a lot of money and a lot of power and big ideas. They basically have the same ailment that afflicted the Tower of Babel architects. But you have a lot of those types who have made it more difficult. Objectively, it is more difficult economically than it was decades ago to get married younger, have a family, buy a home, be debt-free, start your own business, be successful, be self-sufficient. It is objectively harder across the board And that might not be your fault or my fault individually, but is our circumstance more difficult than the circumstance that the people of Israel were in wandering in the desert for 40 years? Hmm? I doubt it. I doubt it. (laughs) I doubt we are as bad off as all that. But even there, God provides. The expectation was that 
these people were going to trust God to provide. And because they didn't, because they grumbled and they complained and they didn't want to do what God was telling them to do. You might say, oh, what's the big deal, right? Totally normal, totally normal that they wouldn't want to go into the promised land. Giants, yeah, that's a very reasonable fear. Of course, it's very reasonable to be afraid of giants who can kill you, especially when you're fighting a lot of these battles with swords and spears. Why would you not be concerned? Why would you want to go into a situation like that and fight and possibly die? Ah, If that's our question, if that's our comment, if that's our thought, maybe we're not any better than the generation that God caused to wander in the desert for 40 years, wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all that generation passed away. Maybe it's going to fall to the next generation to have to actually believe and obey God in a real and abiding way. That, that could be. That might just be at this point. In other news, Planned Parenthood CEOs among the highest paid in nonprofit sector, while abortion giant collected $1.9 billion in government grants and reimbursements, according to a report published by Candace Hathaway over at theblaze.com, Catholic pro-life organization, American Life League's Stop International is dedicated to exposing the, quote, true nature of Planned Parenthood by documenting, quote, its anti-life, anti-family programs, end quote, according to its website. On Wednesday, the Watchdog published the 2023 report on Planned Parenthood CEO compensation, which examined executives' salaries within the organization and its affiliates. The report, completed in March 2023, was based on the abortion provider's latest available financial data from the fiscal year ending in 2020 and some reporting from the fiscal years ending in 2019 and 2021. Quote, Planned Parenthood continues year after year to dramatically increase the salaries of its affiliate corporation CEOs and its New York headquarters staff while continually crying poverty and seeking and receiving more and more taxpayer money. Stop International found that the average CEO compensation within the nonprofit organization was $317,564. Let me say that again. $317,564. The average salary for nonprofit executives in the U.S. is $184,809. Planned Parenthood CEOs saw a 33.4% pay increase from 2015 to 2020, while the average American worker received a 15.6% increase over that same period. So double, right, at twice the rate of the national average, which, let's be honest, a lot of that is erased by inflation and taxes. Nevertheless, the thought should anger us on many levels, right? Our tax monies by the billions, our tax dollars by the billions of dollars are going to Planned Parenthood to pay salaries over and in excess of 300000 a year to oversee abortion mills. They say it's women's health care. It's not women's health care. It is the wholesale slaughter of unborn children, the undesirables the germplasm of society, as the eugenicists a century ago used to call them. Uh, Margaret Sanger, 
who is to blame for Planned Parenthood existing in the first place. Margaret Sanger was an evil, evil, evil woman. And it was just commented and remarked to me by a friend of ours after I loaned her George Grant's excellent biography, disturbing, but excellent, well-written, well-researched, well-documented biography of Margaret Sanger. She just commented to me here recently that Margaret Sanger was an evil, evil woman. And how has she not been canceled? Her remarks about black people and red people and brown people and immigrants, her remarks about young mothers of large families doing the kindest thing they could do for the youngest member of their family, aborting them, were heinous, evil. Her lifestyle, her way of relating to her first husband was awful. Her way of relating to her second husband was awful. Her way of relating to her own children was awful. She was an evil, evil woman. How has she not been canceled? How is it that we're debating whether to rename high schools and colleges and parks and streets because certain founding fathers owned slaves, but Margaret Sanger's organization, Planned Parenthood, is still in business. And the CEOs of Planned Parenthood are making on average $300,000 a year. And Planned Parenthood is receiving billions, with a B, billions of dollars in our taxes, $1.9 billion. How many of these CEOs have seen a 33% increase in their salaries because of the government funding, which is to say, not government funding, actually, not actually government funding, our tax monies, our tax dollars funding, taxpayer funding. It's an evil thing. And it makes me extraordinarily angry that our government doesn't just not punish abortion providers. It doesn't just not punish them and it doesn't just leave them alone. It pays them handsomely to keep up this work of murdering unborn children. That makes me extraordinarily angry. But if you couple that, right, you couple that fact with the business we just talked about with young women and teenage girls, you could classify as young women, young women being on birth control and being extraordinarily depressed. Put these things together and realize that for a century and counting, the social Darwinists, the captains of industry, the social engineers, the eugenicists have run our country so as to eliminate those they deemed unfit to breed, those unfit to reproduce. That's the angle I don't hear anybody talking about. Hey, how do you feel about some very rich, very influential group of elites trying to talk you into aborting your child because they don't think you're fit to reproduce. They don't think that you that you should reproduce. Don't you realize when they make that assessment of you, when they come to that conclusion about you, what they're actually saying is they don't want more people like you in the world. They don't want more people like you. They're already bothered that you exist and that you're here. And now they're trying to talk you into aborting your 
descendants so that there won't be more people like you in the world. It's an extraordinarily dark, evil, wicked thing. Now, if you go along with it, you're an accomplice to murder, and you should know that. But let's just take a moment to realize the people trying to talk you into it, the people organizing and preparing to facilitate the termination of your family line. Those people don't believe that you should be here, in essence. And so they couch all of this in flattery, right? Oh, but you need to do this, and you need to pursue that, and you need to embrace this, and you need to develop this other thing. You need to live your best life now. And it sounds so opposite what we think of when we talk about eugenics, because we think rounding people up, forcing them against their will to be sterilized, or rounding people up who are deemed unfit to survive and poisoning them, starving them, shooting them, gassing them. Now, that way of pursuing eugenics was deemed too horrific and too threatening to the people who were pushing for eugenics. They weren't going to be able to keep on pursuing their vision of the good life for the human race, more specifically for themselves, at the top as they see it. That's what the social Darwinism thing means, is they see themselves as the peak of human evolution, practically evolving into gods, actually. And this is why I say they're of a piece with, they are close kin to the architects of the Tower of Babel, but they don't want to just come out and say, hey, you're not fit to reproduce. They don't want to just come out and say that. So what do they do? They create a hard time. They make it difficult for you to prosper. What we're seeing right now with the decommissioning of cheap and abundant supplies of energy is part of this. In Alex Epstein's The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, he makes this connection explicit. Paul Ehrlich, a leading intellectual in the environmentalist movement around the world, Paul Ehrlich has written about this very candidly in his books. Leading environmentalist intellectuals and academics and policy makers and think tanks funded by the social Darwinists and the eugenicists have been very clear about this. They are not for cheap and abundant energy that would lead to a higher standard of living, a lower cost of living. They're not for that because then what would happen? people would reproduce. What would people do with a lower cost of living, a higher standard of living? They would have families. They would get married and they would have kids and there would be more people. And so their way of curtailing that is to make sure that Planned Parenthood is well-funded, to make sure that the high schools and the colleges and the universities are encouraging as much sex as possible with as little pregnancy as possible. They're not teaching young people to get married and to have kids because they don't want these young people to reproduce. They don't deem them fit to reproduce, except in the very best cases. And that's part of where sports comes in. That's part of where grades come in. The most obedient servants, the strongest, fastest, will give them scholarships because what this is actually about is a selective breeding program. The cream of the crop, the best in breed, they should reproduce. Everybody else, yeah, go kill yourself. 
and abort your babies. You know what? Just abort your babies. That's fine. We'll wait. We'll wait for you to die off so that we don't have to get our hands dirty and, you know, disturb the natives. And meanwhile, these same megalomaniacs, these same villains inject woke theory into every institution they can get their hands on. They inject DEI and ESG and wokeness into our schools, into our libraries, into our movies and our TV shows and our music and our books and our magazines, and yes, even our churches, to convince us all that we are good people because we condemn slave owners from a few hundred years ago. A small percentage of Americans who a few centuries ago owned slaves. Yeah, we're good people because we're opposed to them. They didn't, at their worst, hold a candle to these jokers. And all the time that we're virtue signaling about how good we are, that we're opposed to the slave owners of a few hundred years ago, but we're content for Planned Parenthood CEOs to be collecting salaries of over $300,000 a year on average. We're full of it. We are deluded. We are kidding ourselves and we are being kidded, but we're not having kids. Weird, huh? For our last story, this episode, this is going to be a shorter episode, obviously, if you haven't noticed by now, or if you didn't notice when you clicked play, it's going to be a shorter episode because I got to run. I need to meet somebody out on a site to do a project this morning, and I need to be leaving here soon. But before we go, before we adjourn, let's talk about Zach Jewell over at the Daily Wire publishing a piece titled, Fox Corp encourages employees to support radical LGBTQ organizations, uses woke AI to track commitment to DEI, Matt Walsh reveals. This is not surprising to me generally, but you need to know it and we need to talk about it and we need to explain and understand how this is the case. Now, here's the tweet from Matt Walsh, June 15th. 2023, 3.30 p.m. It's a thread, so multiple tweets. One, breaking. We've obtained internal docs from Fox News employees. Fox Corp is celebrating pride by encouraging employees to read about glory holes, supporting a group that gives sterilizing hormones to homeless youth and deployed woke AI to monitor everyone. And then there's an explicit content warning about what follows in the next set of tweets. But essentially, what you have here is Fox News not being trustworthy. And that shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us. It shouldn't come as a shock to us. I mean, what's the old saying about the fox guarding the hen house? They're literally called Fox News, literally. But for years, this has been a problem that Fox News pulls punches. They are controlled opposition. Yes, they've had some solid talent, some people who uh, I would say, from my perspective, seem to be genuinely conservatives, but then they also have people on who seem to be rather liberal and progressive and Democrats. And we know it's obvious 
how they set those people up and then knock them down like it's a carnival game. You know, step right up, step right up. Whoever can knock down these milk cartons that are stacked up with the ball wins the prize. And there's always some kind of a rig to the game, right? There's always something that is fixed so that the house always wins. Well, so also with Fox News. One thing I noticed a long time ago in watching with my grandparents or with my dad back in the day, back when I used to watch Fox News, it's been a while. One thing I used to notice is they would have somebody on to talk about something very conservative. And they would have somebody on to talk about something very progressive. And when they would have the very progressive person, they would talk over them very aggressively, right? And they would seemingly set them up, have them on just to humiliate them in front of everybody because that's like giving red meat to their conservative base or their flyover country America base. Oh, we love to see that, right? We love to see these Democrats humiliated and talked over and shouted down and mocked and made fun of. We love to see it. But if you were watching, if you were paying attention to how they related to actual conservatives, they did a very similar kind of a thing, but much more subtly. So what they would do is they would have somebody on to talk about something very conservative. And it was always the 30 second soundbite or 15 second soundbite. And then just like The View having Tim Scott on their show and he gets all geared up and Sonny Hostin is trying to talk over him and interrupt him, change the subject and play gotcha. And when that doesn't work, what do they do? Oh, we got to go to commercial break. Fox News would do the same thing. They would have somebody on who's a conservative and they would be trying to explain something and unpack it. And just right as they were getting their momentum built up, oh, we got to go to commercial. Oh, we've got to change the subject. We got to talk about something else. They would change the subject and not in as obvious of a way, but nevertheless, what they were doing was keeping you from being persuaded, giving you the impression that they were giving favorable coverage, but all the while, actually trying to condition us, all of us, to have short attention spans and to think that all of this is just too confusing. We couldn't possibly understand it. Early American history was filled with reading and long speeches and treatises and works of philosophy and arguments, you know, traditional arguments, not just people angrily talking over each other and making fun of each other, trading insults. Early American history was filled with people who were well-read, well-informed, able to articulate their positions. Now, I didn't mean everybody always had well-informed positions or they were always right. No, but one thing Alexis de Tocqueville comments on and remarks in his famous Democracy in America, written after an 1831 trip to the United States to check out how that other young republic was doing, since he was a Frenchman and acquainted with the French Revolution, he wanted to go and check on how the American experiment in self-government was going. He remarked that there were plenty of European governments who had more competent individuals, highly trained at the best schools and universities, the best academies in Europe. Individually, yes, they were probably more competent to be statesmen, but 
collectively across the broad spectrum of American society. You couldn't beat the Americans for their engagement, their interest, their knowledge of current affairs. Why were they so knowledgeable? Why were they so engaged? Because they believed that these were actually decisions that they needed to be able to make. They needed to be able to argue their reasons and argue their case and defend their favorite proposals or candidates. And de Tocqueville commented that it made them better stewards of their businesses, their farms, their homes as a result. It didn't necessarily make them the equal to every one of the best trained statesmen of Europe, but it made them far superior to the common person in Europe who had no interest because it's not my decision. It's not up to me. I don't get to make that call. In fact, I don't even get to question the call that somebody else is going to make. And if I do, if I do anyways, it could cost me. It could be very dangerous for me. There will be reprisals. This is why the freedom of speech is so important. But what do we do with it? What are we doing with our freedom of speech when social media constrains it and when corporate news media caricatures it, makes a mockery of it? Fox News sending money to organizations that are promoting lesbianism, homosexuality for men, bisexuality for men and women, transgenderism, queerness. Fox News sending money to those organizations shouldn't surprise us, but by the same mechanism that they worked so hard to help condition us into having short attention spans, a lot of us have maybe missed the trick. And increasingly, we resemble the Europeans in de Tocqueville's time, the common people who don't believe that these are our decisions to make, and we don't believe we need to have a well-informed opinion. In fact, through COVID, what was the joke? That doing your own research was dangerous. You should trust the experts. That was the joke. Trust the experts. That's not an American idea. That's not an American idea. That's imported. No, no, no. I don't want to trust the experts. I want all of us to know better our business because this is our business. Another curious thing, something to consider before I adjourn here. I'm reading a book on the history of Scotland by a certain Alastair Moffat. Scotland, a history from earliest times is really good so far. I'm about a third of the way through. I'm finding it very fascinating. But Alastair Moffat has just talked about how the Scottish people, centuries in advance of Magna Carta, the Scottish people maintained that their king was their king by their consent. And if the king did not faithfully execute his duties, he could be removed as king and replaced with someone else. They maintained that hundreds of years prior to Magna Carta. Magna Carta was a little late to the game. The Declaration of Independence was a little late to the game, but also we have to understand Magna Carta and the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, were very influenced by this very Scottish idea that your freedom is not just a privilege, it's not just something for you to enjoy and to use to do what you want. Like for instance, deciding I want to travel the world instead of getting married and having kids. I'll figure that stuff out later. I want to pursue a career. Yeah, you're free to pursue a career, ladies, but there are consequences. And also, oh, by the way, what if we need to hold on to our freedoms 
so that we're free to do the traditional thing, to do the obedience to God thing. What about that? What if my freedom is actually a means to the end of obeying God and being faithful and being a good steward of what has been entrusted to me? What if? Now, in the case of Fox News, what they're doing is they're pressuring their people to go woke. All the while, they're covering stories about wokeness as if they're clutching their pearls right alongside of us. No, they're not. Not the people in charge over at Fox. No, they're not. It's an act. They're actors. This is a script. They don't mean it. They're controlled opposition. They are fakes. They are the Judas goat, actually. Fox News, and thanks to Matt Walsh, because I don't believe Matt Walsh for a moment, is this kind. I think the contrast is very sharp, very significant. But Fox News is a Judas goat. Now, what is a Judas goat, by the way? A trained goat used in general animal herding, Wikipedia says. A Judas goat is trained to associate with sheep or cattle, leading them to a specific destination. In stockyards, a Judas goat will lead sheep to slaughter while its own life is spared. Judas goats are also used to lead other animals to specific pens and onto trucks. Fox News wants you to think they've got this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, we we are covering these stories. We are telling you all the news you need to know. Yeah, yeah, we're absolutely on your side. We are against those radical leftists. And then secretly, they're actually in league with them. Secretly, behind the scenes, their managers, their bosses, shake hands, go to the same parties and say, yep, we pretty effectively neutralized and sidelined the conservatives who are waiting on us. (laughs) Fox News is playing the part of the nobles in the story of Braveheart. Remember the nobles who would show up to the battlefield with their armies, not intending to fight, just making an appearance and then being bought off in return for expanded lands and titles from the King of England. Remember those nobles who didn't like it very much when William Wallace wanted to actually fight for Scottish independence? Remember those nobles? Yeah, that's Fox News. That's the donor class in far too many cases in the U.S. Don't wait on the donor class to tell you what is going to be successful, aka what they're going to give money to. No. And oh, by the way, this is another reason to get married young, as young as you can, work hard alongside one another, have kids, have a whole mess of kids, and work hard to provide for and protect and teach and train and love and lead those kids because that is probably... Let's just be honest, that's probably the only way we see significant political transformation in this country as we look to the next generation and we raise the next generation. At a certain point, God even looks at the people he has brought out of Egypt and he says, not a one of you are going to enter the promised land except Joshua and Caleb. The rest of you will not see Canaan. Interesting too, that even right as the report from the spies is delivered up and God pronounces judgment on that generation and says they're going to wander in the desert for 40 years, 
He doesn't even say Moses and Aaron are going to see the promised land. He doesn't say they're not, but later on he does, after their disobedience on the issue of speaking to the rock. They strike the rock instead of speaking to the rock. But if God himself sometimes writes off a whole generation because that generation is corrupt, if God himself sometimes says this generation grumbles and murmurs and disobeys and is faithless, at a certain point we have to say, you know what, this generation, this generation that is in power right now probably needs to just be written off. But what can we not be doing if we are hopeful to be like Joshua and Caleb? We can't be not having kids, not having families, not getting married. I think what we should do is seek the welfare of the city, just like the prophet Jeremiah tells the exiles in Babylon, you're going to be here for some time. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be over soon. Don't believe the false prophets who are telling you to keep your bags packed. You'll be back in Jerusalem before you know it. Don't believe them. They're lying. They're false prophets. The truth is, <laughs> we're going to be here for a while. So get settled. Build houses, plant vineyards, plant gardens, take wives, have children, have sons and daughters. Give those sons and daughters in marriage so that they also have children after them. Increase in the land and do not decrease. Pray for the peace of the city. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's where our heads should be at. I firmly believe that's where me and my household are going to focus our efforts. And you know what? If there's a surprise, if there's a pleasant surprise in the coming election cycle or the next couple, great. That's fantastic. Wonderful. But these woke folk, they're not going to endure. They're the kind who fall in the desert and they don't persist. They are the wicked who are going to blow away like chaff. Tell the righteous it will go well with them. Tell the righteous it will go well with them. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.